Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, The Guardian's regular look at what's moving and shaking in Brexit land. This week, a tale of three speeches by a former Conservative Prime Minister, a former Labour leader, and finally, the long-awaited intervention from Theresa May that was supposed to reveal what Brexit means Brexit actually means. Spoiler alert, it didn't, of course, but we'll come to that in a bit. We'll also be examining the EU's reaction to that speech. We'll be dissecting the draft withdrawal agreement drawn up by the EU and published last week. And we'll be having a look at what might be in the bloc's draft guidelines for the final UK-EU trade deal that's expected later this week. So, lots to go at as ever. With me to gaze once more into the Brexit crystal ball are The Guardian's Brexit policy editor Dan Roberts, Brexit correspondent Lisa O'Carroll and Brussels correspondent Jennifer Rankin. Welcome to all of you. Let's kick off with those big two anti-Brexit speeches first, shall we? Nothing new there really, but certainly impassioned. In essence, Tony Blair said the EU can't give Britain what it wants almost unfettered access to the single market without abiding by all of the rules because it quite simply can't. And it should be up to Parliament to bring the government to its senses. Sir John Major, on the other hand, also advanced logical, detailed, well-informed arguments, urged the country and especially his party, I suppose, to get real and called for a free vote in Parliament on whether or not there should be a second referendum. Predictably, of course, both were furiously shot down as treachery most foul. But sadly, that's pretty much where we are these days. Dan, can I start with you? Firstly, we've had several of these speeches from the likes of Tony Blair and John Major. Now, do you think they serve any purpose for the Remain or at least the ultra-soft Brexit cause? Well, I thought John Major's speech was uh, quite unlike anything else I'd heard so far um, because he carried such enormous authority as a former Conservative Prime Minister. David Cameron is off the reservation for obvious reasons, having Mm. been blamed rightly for uh, getting us into this mess. Um, So John Major was perhaps the only person, I think, with the authority to stage what was, I believe, in psychological terms, they call an intervention. I, I mean, this was <laughs> this was an attempt to sort of grab his party by the scruff of the neck and shake it into um, consciousness. Uh, I'm afraid in that he, he largely failed. It was one of the best, most impressive political speeches I've ever heard. And, and I sat four years in Washington listening to Obama give some, some pretty cracking speeches. So that... Um, uh, but he was dismissed in the most terribly tribal, depressing way. There was a, um, an old colleague of mine from The Telegraph who normally knows, you know, I normally rate a lot, but stood up at the end of the questions and um, at the end of the speech and asked a question saying, well, if you feel that way, Mr. Major, shouldn't you re- resign from the Tory party? I mean, that was literally the level of debate with which this was received on mm. the right. Um, and, and on the left, I have to say, it, it, it got less of... Um, um, traction than it should have done too. I think a lot of people are still carrying sort of somewhat tribal, sneery instincts towards Major from when his government was hobbling along. And nobody re- 
really listened to what he had to say, which was, I thought, did strike some new ground. I mean, he, his fundamental point was not only are we doing ourselves an enormous act of self-harm, but that, that's what Parliament should be there to stop. Mm. He had this really memorable line where he said, basically, of course we can't ignore the will of the people, but Parliament also has a responsibility to look after the well-being of the people. And I, he wasn't just a paternalistic sort of elite person saying this this was the kid from the the wrong side of the tracks mm. in lambeth standing up and saying this is a policy that is going to cause irreparable damage to the people in society who can least afford it and i thought that he was one of the few people who could make that argument and it sunk without a trace yeah yeah i, I mean does, it, does that mean we've moved beyond the scope for, for sort of reasoned evidence-based debate now on brexit I, i'm increasingly coming around to the feeling that one of the biggest problems with Brexit is a broken media. I I do think that we have an incredibly tribal, ill-informed, shallow media debate in this country on both sides. And I I think Remainers have a lot to answer for there as well. Um, People have been shouting each other hoarse for two years and they're not listening anymore. And so I think, you know, there's a lot that the politicians have to answer for as well. But um, I think we should hold ourselves up and and ask questions. In any other country, if if two former prime ministers had basically staged the kind of intervention that was staged last week, it would be a matter of national emergency. People would be going, oh my God, what are we Mm. doing? And it just was just shrugged off yeah. was more of the same nobody's listening Jennifer were they were they listening in Brussels do you think I mean it, Tony Blair in particular had quite an interesting point I think didn't he uh, when he said the EU could actually help itself by maybe thinking about preparing a, a sort of acceptable way back for the UK at some stage in the future because as, as he put it a Britain outside the EU would inevitably become some kind of competitive pole and a focus for disunity, in, in his words. Was that a message that, that, that struck home at all in Brussels? Yes, and Tony Blair was even giving his speech in Brussels, mm. so he really was trying to reach beyond a, a UK audience. But it did really meet with overwhelming silence, I think, and it did and it fizzled out uh, uh, in Brussels, and that's really because Tony Blair is seen as having no impact or influence on the UK debate. And some people have said to me, "Well, you know, if it was Theresa May saying saying this, that would be a different story." But uh, but we but people just don't see Tony Blair as as a, as a player in the the debate on Brexit for now. And also, there's a sense that even if Theresa May, you know, in a, in a, in some strange parallel universe, was making these kind of arguments, there's the view that well. Even then, we don't know if the, the the British public would change their minds if people would vote to stay. So there's real wariness of making any kind of offer when there's no sign whatsoever from the UK that there is a um, a, a, a real change of mind or change of heart on Brexit. Hmm. And then, of course, people also remember that uh, it was Tony Blair saying, um, well, over ten years ago now that the UK had opened its labour market to the the rest of um, to Central and Eastern Europe, and that that was a great thing, and and others should have done the same. So those countries that did put in place that seven-year safeguard to mm. to delay the introduction of free movement of, of people, they're not really very sympathetic to the, the case he's trying to make now. And I think really the, the best um, or the most telling sign of the, the very sort of limited impact the speech had was, the, was a speech by the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte on Friday. And as it happened, he was speaking just um, half an hour or 45 minutes before Theresa May began her speech. And he made a very long and detailed speech on EU reform. And he barely mentioned Brexit at all, apart from a very mild joke about uh, 
about Mrs May's speech that was about to begin shortly afterwards. And that really does give you a sense of the EU's priorities. They are marching on with their own reform ideas and they don't really see, uh, the, they don't really see the need to make a, a big offer to the British. Yeah, focused somewhere else. Lisa, um, Blair also made quite uh, a lot of of this idea that the government was risking uh, sacrificing peace in Northern Ireland on the altar of Brexit, he said. Um, now, we'll, we'll talk about the, we'll come back to the border a little bit later um, in, in the podcast, but it's true that we have heard quite a few Brexiteer voices recently, last week in particular, um, questioning the value of the of the Good Friday Agreement, haven't we? I mean, so Blair, does Blair have a point there? Uh, well, I think it's in- interesting you mentioned that because I was going to respond to what Dan and Jennifer have said. I said, I- isn't it the truth that jo- neither John Major or Tony Blair have power? They have influence, perhaps. And the problem is that those in power aren't doing anything. So the opposition aren't acting as a strong opposition. <clears throat> and I think the most interesting thing after Theresa May's speech, <clears throat> excuse me, which I know we're about to get on to, is that um, she seemed to achieve some sort of unity. The uh, rebels, apart from Anna Soubry, kind of fell away. You had the likes of Sarah Wollaston mm. indicating that she was going to change her mind and she was quite a high-profile person who had quit the Leave campaign very early on over the claims about the NHS. On Northern Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement, I don't think there's any real criticism um, of that other than from, you know, the likes of Kate Hoey, etc., who were isolated mm. pretty much. I don't think this, I don't, I really don't think anybody has any interest um, in going there. I think there are a lot of claims have been made, for instance, um, this question or attack on um, Varadkar and others trying to um, challenge the constitutional integrity of Northern Ireland, which has been um, widely <coughs> rejected by those people who actually know about the constitutional integrity mm. of Northern Ireland okay. and don't know about the Belfast Agreement or the Good Friday Agreement. There's been a lot, a lot of um, shrill voices out there in relation to the Good Friday Agreement, not least from the DUP. Um, last week, Sammy Wilson, the Brexit negotiator, made an absolute appalling statement, um, which uh, said that Tony Blair and uh, John Major should be ashamed of themselves trying to blow up mm. Brexit. He said that they should dial down their rhetoric. Um, no irony there about pots calling kettles black. Um, and that they would fail in the same way as the IRA had failed to blow mm. up the union. I mean, that, just extraordinary stuff. The, tre- the treachery charge is one that I, that I found particularly um, upsetting to watch thrown at people like Major last week because mm. he wasn't the only one to to, to allude to that. It, 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 you know, the, the the idea that you can compare um, the people who who who, who brought us peace in Northern Ireland mm. with the terrorists um, is is absurd. But then, but but it's completely in line with everything else we're hearing at the moment. Anybody who questions the narrative is a traitor. Mm. Um, even if they're a former prime minister, whichever party they're on. I mean, it's yes, very my po- dangerous. My point about power was on Brexit. They don't have a power. They have an influence. But on Northern Ireland, um, it's kind of unquestionable. They did. They did bring peace to Northern yeah. Ireland. Yeah, I mean, um, they were involved in the actual process. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, a very, very dangerous language. Um, well, let's let's move on to um, the third of that that trilogy of speeches, then, and the last, in fact, of the in the government's so-called road to Brexit series. Um, now, this was Theresa May's speech um, at the end of last week. Uh, 
at the heart of it was uh, an exposition of, of this idea of ambitious managed divergence, uh, which the government seems to finally have settled on, um, which basically entails the, the UK staying in, in full regulatory alignment in some areas of trade, but diverging over time uh, in others. Uh, now, some might say that this kind of really just reflects a refusal to grasp that while there are certainly different ways of being in or out of the single market, you really can't be both in it and out of it. The single market really doesn't work that way. And someone, in fact, um, Simon Fraser, former head of the uh, of the Foreign Office, here summed that whole speech up as an exceedingly complicated and very expensive way of trying to stay as close as possible politically to where we are now. Uh, but Dan, leaving the content aside for a second, there was a difference of tone there, wasn't there? A, a sort of a recognition that the UK might not actually get all that it wanted. Um, ultimately, though, was it was it more an attempt, do you think, to keep both sides of the Brexit debate in the UK happy, rather than a kind of a, a serious exposition of a, of a Brexit plan for, for the EU's consumption? I wish it was even that. I mean, I don't think this government is capable of thinking beyond the day to day. It's literally a battle for survival. And this, uh, if to, just to dial back and remind ourselves of the context of this, this was born of the Checkers Away Day, mm. which was an attempt to then to heal the wounds in, in, inside the cabinet that had failed to be healed by the two all day special cabinet uh, subcommittee sessions on Brexit. And, and basically, these, these are all stumbling from one internal crisis to the next. Um, and, and yes, there, there was an attempt to reach out as far as both sides of the Tory party, um, uh, certainly no further. But I think even in that, we have to check ourselves here a bit. There's this been this overwhelming narrative in the last few days, of which I've been partially guilty myself, of saying that there was a huge shift in tone in, in Theresa May's speech. Well, a little. I mean, compared to this totally Panglossian idea mm. that you could have, have everything you want with nothing in return and that there was no chance of any other outcome well yes i mean if she was 10 percent more realistic then that's to be applauded but if, if you look back at the speech and i did the other day after having let the dust settle for a couple of days there's still an awful lot of nonsense in there i mean just <laughs> just outright naked um refusal to grapple with the issues that are that are the, the most striking for me was the refusal to deal with the challenge that had been laid down only a few days earlier around the transition deal and this mm. eu proposal for northern because quite frankly, if we can't even um, sign off on the deal that we supposedly agreed in December and then hopefully um, buy ourselves a bit of time with this transition deal, what on earth hope do we have of moving on to the next stage yeah. and, and having a, 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 a constructive free trade agreement? So it, the fact that she just swept that aside and pretended that it wasn't that happening exist, was for yeah. me just more sign of denial. I mean, mm. this is a government in absolute denial. The only the thing that I thought was most telling of all was less what she said than the way she said it, which just felt so resigned and weary and like her heart wasn't in it. There was a moment a German newspaper um, mm. uh, reporter asked her, um, at the is end of the speech, it is it all worth it? it? Yeah. And she, she kind of paused awkwardly and then she sort of said, well, if that's a way of getting me to say that we're going to change our mind, we're not going to change our mind. It's like, it's, it know, is true. I mean, I mean, absolutely no indication at any point of, 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 of that Britain 
might be remotely better off. I kind of the whole in, whole tone of it was sort of this is this is damage limitation. They've given up now. selling uh, the positive vision at all. There was nothing in that speech that presented a construct. If I was if I was a lever, I would look at that speech and say, my God, is this what we, you know? Wh- wh- where is, is this my all champion? it is? Is this what yeah. it, you know? Yeah. Jennifer, I mean, Brussels didn't think much of it either, did it? Uh, I think it's fair to say this idea, particularly of a um, of a free trade agreement um, at the end of the day, that's based on 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 what the prime minister calls a, a mutual recognition of standards uh, overseen by some sort of third party institution, rather than the European Court of Justice. Um, I mean, I think it was noteworthy, wasn't it, that, that just uh, just uh, uh, this week uh, in a speech at the LSE, Stefan de Rink, who's Michel Barnier's advisor, sort of really poured cold water on that whole idea of mutual recognition and also, in fact, on on the Prime Minister's idea that the UK might be able to stay in those those European regulatory agencies, medicines and chemicals and aviation and, and, and all that after Brexit. So, I mean, for, as far as Brussels is concerned, was this just more cherry-picking? Well, I think the short answer is yes. But to, but to, to return to the question of tone, I, I think people did appreciate the change in tone from Theresa May, and that was certainly noted. And the first thing that people noted, in people in Brussels remember the citizens of nowhere speech. They remember the half-failed threat to withdraw British security cooperation from the EU. So I think they really did appreciate the fact that she was taking a more moderate tone and she clearly looked and listened to what the EU red lines were and, and tried to uh, accommodate them to some degree. But then when you look at the detail, people would say, well, well yes, but there's still, it still looks like the UK wants to, to, to have something that we're not offering when it comes to managed divergence that, uh, and this system of mutual recognition, which is, as you say, Michelle Barnett advisor has just poured cold, cold water all over and that, that was the immediate response on, on Friday. People were saying, well, this is, this is something we just can't um, accept. Mm. And then also on the agencies question, I, it's often discussed in the UK as if um, I've heard in the media debate, debate in the last few days, it's sort of presented almost as if the UK has now signed up to these agencies and is ready to take part in them. But it's worth um, the reminder that the EU hasn't said yes to this yet and we don't know if they will say yes. And Although you get the sense that um, officials don't want to rule out the proposals out of hand, but they do see a lot of problems mm. for the UK remaining in these agencies. Theresa May specifically mentioned medicine, chemicals, aviation, but um, but so far there is only very limited scope for for countries within the European Economic Area, maybe mm. um, maybe Norway, for example, to to have some kind of relationship. But it's much harder, and Switzerland has a relationship with the aviation body, mm. but it's much harder for. Um, uh, and it's in, in fact there is no precedent for country out, countries outside those that sort of orbit of EU cooperation. So it's a tall order. Yes, Britain is asking for something that doesn't exist so far. Yeah, and even if we get it, what do we have? We have um, uh, we're certainly not taking back control. We'd basically be rule takers on some of the most advanced and prestigious bits of our economy. I mean, that's the the other. Craziness of this um, supposed grand gesture by Theresa May—it's a wave of the white flag. It's basically saying yes for the bits of the economy that really matter. We're going to have to carry on with what we've got now, only with no say. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, Lisa, the, the, the Prime Minister's speech also made much of the point that the, you know, the whole point of one of the big points of Brexit, this finally being free of the, of the EU's shackles to strike free trade deals around the globe with countries like the US. But that's taken something of a knock this week, too, hasn't it? Uh, you, you were at an event with the, with the, the former UK ambassador to, to the United States who had some words to say on that. Yes. Yeah, that was last night, Sir Peter Westmacott. Um, who was there during the Obama years. Um, Dan uh, probably remembers him. Um, he was very, very critical and he opened his speech to a group of elite commercial lawyers by saying that he'd been told by colleagues that it really wasn't the done thing to speak out, um, that it was unfair on those people who were left uh, still in government as government servants. And he said, well, he took the view that he was no longer in the government payroll and that uh, the, the country was facing an existential change and it was important for people um, to, like him to speak mm. out. Um, he warned that, uh, you know, things that lots of people will, will know already and agree with, that a free trade trade agreement, um, a generous free trade agreement with um, America uh, is, Ill, uh, is an illusion, um, that it is extremely difficult. And he said he was involved in trade negotiations before. He went through sectors like aviation, defence, public procurement. He pointed out a very interesting point, which was that a lot of public procurement restrictions are laid down by state regulation, not even federal. Mm. So it'll be very, very difficult for any sort of arrangement on that. Um, And he also said that it'll be an absolute red line that America will want an agricultural deal, which means chlorinated chicken, genetically modified pesticides, all these things that are banned. And he also made the other interesting point. He said that Brexit was so time consuming for the government that it was so absorbed in either trying to dampen down the divisions within the Tory party in the cabinet or just trying to find the right way um, to sail through this mess that Britain was no longer perceived as pulling its weight diplomatically, that it wasn't taking a lead in um, issues like Yemen, he talked mm. about, and he talked about the British history there in that region. So it was quite interesting. A sort of retreat on the international stage as well. Uh, OK, um, now, before we turn to the one upcoming uh, important document that we expect this week, let's briefly look at the one that came out last week, uh, which was, of course, the EU's draft withdrawal agreement. Now, this is basically an attempt to put the December agreement on the terms of the UK's exit from the EU under Article 50 into sort of legally binding form. Um, It is only a draft. um, And like so much else, it awaits a UK counter proposal. But there was in it um, a clause that caused fury uh, among Brexiters, namely the idea that unless Britain could actually come up with an acceptable way to avoid a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic through either through a, a new trade agreement or some kind of technological arrangement as yet undreamed of, um, Northern Ireland would in effect remain in the customs union and the single market. Now, some Brexiters described this simply as an EU annexation uh, of Northern Ireland. Prime Minister, and as we are recording this, uh, the DUP denounced it as utterly unacceptable. Um, Dan, among the howls of rage about this clause were some that were claiming that it was simply not a fair reflection of the December agreement. Do they do they have a point at all? No, but I'll explain why they think they have a point. So <laughs> it omitted the second bit of the December agreement. The first bit of the December agreement, if you remember, cast our mind back to that moment that Arlene Foster nearly brought the whole house down um, 
uh, back in December. Mm. Um, the Brits said, OK, so plan A and plan B look a bit shaky. So plan C will have total regulatory alignment and that'll make sure that we're allowed to keep that border open. At which point DUP howl and say that's um, putting the um, border up the, the Irish Sea instead. Mm. And so the Brits add a line saying... And we will make sure that none of this threatens the internal integrity of the single market in the UK, to which everybody then assumes, and David Davis appears in Parliament a few days later to confirm, means that the government is looking for regulatory alignment across the UK. So Brussels tries to put this into legal form that can be held accountable, thinks, oh, I'm not sure we want to kind of spell out this bit about the UK staying in the single market in the customs union. That really would be a red rag to the ball, even though that is implicit in the government's um, agreement in mm. December. But we'll leave that bit out. We'll focus on the bit where we have a remit, which is the pre- preserving the um, freedom of that border. And so we will simply say that what you've agreed to, we think, implies customs union single market in northern ireland what you want to do with the irish sea the the bit between northern ireland and the uk that's for you britain that is a sovereign choice that's nothing to do with the eu and they were right to avoid that um and then they get pounced on for saying ah but now they're saying the solution is we annex northern ireland and and it's just (laughs) it's 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 insane because the problem is the deliberate ambiguity of the government's original position in december which was intended to mean two different things to do two different audiences all that brussels has done is flush that out into the open and suddenly we're dealing with annexation i mean words fail me (laughs) i would actually say there was absolutely no um, um ambiguity in that paragraph was paragraph 49 it was option a b and c and option c is the only one that the withdrawal agreement can point to because options a and b are um dependent on negotiations option a is the full deal and option Mm. b is is a bespoke solution so um on on the border thing um i i think um phil hogan the commissioner who gave some interviews straight away last week was Mm. saying he was surprised that there was so much surprise um, because they'd already signed up to it. Um, and uh, the DUP, I mean, you've referred to it briefly already, but they, they the, Arlene Foster and, and a delegation from the DUP met uh, Michel Barnier today and came out all guns blazing. They did, but about the thing is, the, the thing with the DUP, as somebody said to me yesterday from Queen's University, the DUP howl and scream because they have no policies to bring to the table. Where are their policies? Where are their imaginative and flexible solutions? They're not there. I think the most depressing thing about this is that we all recognise that it's probably an impossible... Possible circle to square. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And yet the lie is that the government are are still saying, or, you know, still in denial and still saying they've got a a solution. So Theresa May on Andrew Marr on Sunday morning said that she was looking forward to talking um, to the Taoiseach and Brussels about these new proposals um, and sitting down to discuss them. And then yesterday, um, caught on the hop, she referred to the Canada and US border as the model for Northern Ireland. So that suggests that there is no work. Mm. There is no proposal. Being done, yeah. Yeah. It also it, it reflects also a prime minister who I think um, I mean we've I've accused David Davis before of having a shaky grasp of the facts and I've always thought that the prime minister one of the few things you could say about her is she was quite a serious she was across the detail curve, yeah. across the detail person but that throwaway remark about Canada in the US for me just revealed. It was almost as bad as Boris Johnson saying this is like a border between London boroughs. Uh, it revealed utter ignorance of... And you've uh, been on the, the border, Dan, like, haven't I, you? I sat in a traffic jam for three hours trying to get across that border between Vancouver and Seattle, this was, two, two years back. And then I got called in and I spent another hour inside a guard booth having my papers checked 
um, because there was some question over our visa. It turned out there wasn't a problem. But it, it, it didn't feel very virtual. I mean, the idea that that border doesn't exist when you spend four hours trying to cross it, and that was not an untypical... Um, I've got cousins who live in Canada. This is a regular occurrence. Um, and yes, they, 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 they work very closely. And yes, there are some computers in the background that try and smooth things out. But the, the, the idea that that's a solution to the Irish problem... But it also, I think it also shows that Theresa May has not tried to establish any empirical evidence. She hasn't gone to the border in Ireland. She hasn't gone to the border in, Me- in, in Mexico or US or Canada. So, I mean, she's, it's just a, an extraordinary situation. As Chris Leslie, one of the Labour MPs, tweeted last night, a photograph of a van or a truck being inspected, all its contents, com- mm. you know, the truck was completely empty. And then there was a, a screen um, in which it would show that, they, that uh, the driver has to... Um, uh, has to uh, share 23 uh, points of data, presumably name, mm. license plate, um, license number, etc., to, to yeah, 40 yeah. different agencies oh. in the States. Yes. No, I mean, it's, it is becoming a fairly extraordinary debate. Um, Jennifer, there was one, there's one point I just wanted to raise, uh, or I'm interested to hear your view on relating to, to that specifically. Um, because there were some some quite some very sensible, essentially sort of pro-European, pro-Remain voices uh, on this side of the channel. I'm thinking of people like Charles Grant uh, of the Centre for European Reform, who have said that, in essence, that, that, that while the EU may have been right in the strictly legal sense in inserting this, this or having this clause in the draft agreement, uh, you know, it, it should consider really the impact that that may have on political opinions here and, and might be counterproductive insofar as it basically gives sort of fuel to the to the Brexit ultras. Is that is that a view, do you think, that uh, that Brussels might be prepared to hear or, or are they really not interested? It's certainly not a view that I'm hearing expressed at the moment, although you do you do get the sense that there is nervousness about this issue. And in the weeks in the, in the run-up to publishing this document on Wednesday, there was a lot of um, anxiety about how the British would respond. And people were expecting political turbulence. They were expecting fury and, and, and lots of raging on, about this proposal. So there's, there's definitely still some nervousness about it now. And you do hear from some diplomats the kind of line, well, well, this is only a fallback option and we wait for the UK to come up with their proposals. And indeed, that's exactly what Michel Barnier said last week in, in his... Um, when he was launching this document uh, last Wednesday. Mm. But on the other hand, we know as Lisa's run through the options and we know that option A is the, the sort of deep and, and, and special relationship where the, the border just disappears because it's, the UK remains in the customs union and we know the government has taken that off the table. And then we know that option B are these uh, rather um, imaginative proposals mm. for the UK to, to do um, EU border checks or, or to get some lots of magical technological fixes and in the EU these have already been dismissed as magical thinking and we heard Theresa May repeat these ideas last week which 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 shows that the the problem that, that hasn't moved on and this this remains like a, a massive um, mm. area of disagreement between the two sides 
So I, I think there's, there's still that sense that, the, that it's the UK's role to come to fix this problem and really not the EU's task. And, and it was very interesting, actually, for me talking to one diplomat last week about this. And, and he's from a, from a country that is definitely a, a traditional friend and ally of the UK. And he was saying, well, I know this, this, is, this sounds heavy handed, this sounds brutal, but, but just tell me how else this can work. And for, for many on the EU side, they really see that, you know, if, if there is going to be no customs union and if there is, you know, these magical solutions aren't going to arrive, they don't see what the alternative is. And many people here argue, well, what else did the UK think it was signing up for in December when it agreed on full regulatory alignment? And spelling out a few uncomfortable truths to Brexiters can't really do much harm. Lisa, you wanted to... Yeah, I just wanted to say that I thought there was an interesting narrative throughout Theresa May's speech, but particularly in Northern Ireland, and it was a plea for help. It was, we can't do this on our own. It is for all of us to work together. And I think there will come a time when the EU and Dublin will have to drop their hard line. Everybody has to work together. If you're all in this together and sincere about not wanting any friction in Northern Ireland, it behoves everybody to come up with a solution. And I think I think that... That for Akar, um, there are a couple of domestic issues that um, have arisen in the past week over um, his communications. And uh, uh, yeah, I think at some point the EU are going to have to be involved to, in it. People have to yeah, work together. OK, finally, then the draft guidelines for the new trading arrangement. Um, they are expected fairly imminently. All the indications are that they're going to be relatively brief and fairly vague, but it does seem that they will necessarily confront the British government with some fairly binary choices uh, and, and may force it to sort of finally come off the fence. Jennifer, is that roughly right? I mean, what, what do we know about what is coming down the track here? I mean, there's no suggestion that the EU will be presenting a kind of a detailed trade deal option, is there? No, I don't, I don't think we're going to see anything very detailed. And, and for some time, we've heard from the EU that they couldn't possibly come up with, with very much, given they had so little from the British. Of course, that changed on Friday with Theresa May's speech. And, and we saw that welcome by Barnier, Michel Barnier, who said, um, uh, well, there's clarity and the, a recognition of the trade-offs in this speech. Um, so that will inform our guidelines. So you could almost sort of see it as, as a sort of sense in that of the EU deciding, you know, well, now we prepare for a free trade agreement. But at the same time, I think they will try and leave doors open. They don't want to close any, any options to mm. the UK in case the government further down the tracks decides it would like something else after all. And it's also worth bearing in mind as well that we do have some hints already from the, the guidelines that were published last April, the EU's first set of guidelines, and that laid out some, some of the, the, the early principles about the importance of um, the level playing field for the EU, that sort of equal competition for the UK and not, being, not allowing themselves to be undercut by low standards on the other side of, of the channel. Mm. So you can already see from, from what uh, Theresa May was saying on Friday that that's had a, an, an effect and, and that is that does seem to be shaping how the UK is responding to Brexit with the with um, the Prime Minister now saying and promising there will be no race to the bottom on standards. On standards, yeah. Yeah, um, Dan, I mean, if if it is the impact of this, this, this document does effectively sort of, while, as Jennifer says, uh, you know, remaining open in some, in some areas, effectively rule out, you know, quite a, a raft of stuff that, that the Prime Minister was outlining in that speech last week. What will be the, what will be the result, do you think? I mean, is the government ready to come off the fence? I don't think so. I think I, th- I think 
both sides have a bit of an incentive to keep kicking the can down the road, although Brussels has been trying to kind of inject some realism into this. I don't think either of them want it to blow up. I think what we are perhaps also seeing to be Machiavellian about this is a bit of a hope on the Brussels side that perhaps Labour's intervention on the customs union opens a chink for shifting the government position. If you listen to some of the more um, paranoid um, uh, right-wing commentators, they see it as a plot, Brussels-backed plot to help Labour bring down the government. I mean, there is <laughs> there is a game, there is a long game here that that this all comes to a head in the autumn. Um, and if the government loses um, that vote, then there there are strong arguments for a second referendum. All bets are off. So. I think there will be a, a, an attempt to give a little bit of wiggle room. I don't think that either side wants this to quite come off the rails now. OK, okay. Um, just finally, just very briefly before we go, um, long before the autumn, of course, we are now but days away from that 22nd, 23rd of March council meeting. Jennifer, um, is Britain going to meet the deadline for that? You mean to, to get a, a transition deal yes. done? I think it's it's I think it's still doable. Yes, but it's uh, it's by no means guaranteed. You're ever the optimist, Jennifer. <laughs> oh, the glass is always half full. So how do you get there from here? Because I'd love to think you're right, but what, what, what I, I think that, I think the, I think the government will will agree. It's already made a big climb down on citizens' rights, for example, by agreeing to the EU's demand that um, that EU citizens coming after the transition can have full rights. And I think I think now the government realises that it has no choice but to agree to the EU's terms if it wants the transition. And the message has been very clear all along. If you want a transition agreement at all, these are the terms and, and accept them. And I think, I think it would be very hard for the government to, to get any of its objectives on, um, on sort of maintaining a, a, a role in EU lawmaking. Some of the things the government is asking for, in fact, you can't even get to an EU member state now. So, it's, <laughs> so I, think it's, I think it's going to have to accept um, the inevitable and I think it can be done in March. But not inevitable, but it's possible. OK, well, we shall see. Um, that's it, uh, I'm afraid, for this week. Uh, my thanks to Jennifer, Lisa, Dan for joining me today. Please subscribe, review on all your favourite podcatchers and join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch at all, please do. The address is Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. Till next week, then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Rowan Slaney. This was Brexit Means, and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.